Jeremiah chapter 15, let's begin at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. My, that's a cheery verse to begin our evening Bible study with, isn't it? Friends, let's be just very straightforward about the book of Jeremiah. It's dark. It's a downer in many ways. Now, as we're going to see tonight, God can't let it go with the dark aspect of the book of Jeremiah too far before he has to throw in some light. And we're going to see flashes of brilliant light through our text this evening. There's no doubt about that. But I don't want to sugarcoat this. Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke to a bunch of people who didn't want to listen to him and who never did listen to him at a time when judgment was going to come upon the kingdom of Judah. And that judgment came just as Jeremiah prophesied. But when he gave the prophecies, nobody cared, nobody listened. They hardened their hearts against Jeremiah and the message that he brought. Now look... I I am familiar how the Bible presents this concept to us, that we each have our own race to run. Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, uses that figure, doesn't he? He talks about how he wants to finish his race, how he wants to run the race that God has given him. And he speaks at the very end of his life in the book of 2 Timothy at how he has run his race. My friends, here's the concept. You have your race to run, I have my race to run. Jeremiah had his race to run. I don't think that there's a single person in this room who has the same race to run as Jeremiah. But you know what? You can learn by the way that he ran it. You can learn something about how to run the race God has given you to run. How you can serve God and give glory to him in the midst of the calling and the station that God has put you in right now by looking at this man who stood strong in the midst of such a difficult calling. I mean, look, look at verse 1 again. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. You see, several times before, God told Jeremiah not to pray for the people. Isn't that a startling thing? That God would tell a prophet, don't pray for those people. Because this was the idea God was trying to communicate both to Jeremiah and to the people was that their judgment was settled. There was no averting it. And to strengthen that point, God says, even if Moses and Samuel were to pray to me, it wouldn't change a thing. That's if God was saying this to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, it's not like you're not a good enough prophet. It's not like you're not good enough prayer. Because even if Moses were to pray to me, even if Samuel were to pray to me, and friends, we know that from the Old Testament, both Moses and Samuel were men who prayed and God averted judgment to Israel a couple of times when Moses and Samuel prayed. God answered in a mighty way. But God says, you know what? It is so far gone. The people have been so established in their wickedness that even if Moses or if Samuel were to pray, it would not matter. And he says, verse 1, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Jeremiah, it's not your fault. Jeremiah, you shouldn't think, if only I was a better preacher, the people would respond. 
Jeremiah, you shouldn't think if only I was a better intercessor for the people, then God would change. No, it's not you, Jeremiah. It's them. It's those people. And he says at the end of verse 1, cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. Judah, the kingdom of Judah, would face their appointed and righteous exile out of the land. Pick it up now, verse 2. And it shall be, if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, such as for death to death, and such as for the sword to the sword, and such as for the famine to the famine, and such as for the captivity to the captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. See, at the end of verse one, God promised Judah, I'm gonna cast you out of the land. God imagines Judah as well. Oh, you're gonna cast us out of the land? Where are you gonna send us? God says, I'm glad you asked. I'm gonna send you to death in four ways. Now, the first one, at least in the New King James Bible, it's described there in verse two as death. It's really not a good translation. Death is better translated there as plague or pestilence. So God says, here's four ways that you're going to face death. Plague, pestilence, the sword in battle, by famine and by captivity. Yeah, I got four different selections on the menu of death for you when judgment comes. Friends, that's stern stuff. But you and I read that, we go, oh man, that's rough. The next statement to the ancient Hebrew mind is even more shocking. The next statement is this. And after four forms of death, I've got four forms of destruction. Now look, in the modern Western world, we generally, I'm not going to say absolutely, we generally have this mentality. Hey man, if I'm dead, I'm dead. Do whatever you want to my body. I don't care. In the ancient Hebrew, and I should say Near Eastern mindset, there was a fate worse than death. And it was to die and to have your body desecrated. God says, that's what's going to happen. Not only will they die in four ways, but then some of their bodies will be hacked to death by the sword. Look at it there. It's all in verse 3. There's four forms of destruction. Some of them by the sword. Some of them mauled by dogs. Some of them picked apart by the birds of the air. And others eaten by the beasts of the earth. And an ancient Hebrew person would read this and just recoil in shock. Oh God, what a judgment against us. Why would you bring such a terrible judgment against us? Notice it in verse 4. Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. There was a king before the time of Jeremiah. So this is before Jeremiah ever started his prophetic career. Before the time of Jeremiah, there was a king over the kingdom of Judah named Manasseh. And Manasseh was so wicked that he set judgment on an irreversible course for Judah. Now look, it's not as if he was the only bad king of Judah. I'm not trying to say that, and God never says that. But Manasseh was so unique because he set Judah on an irreversible course of judgment. So much so that look at what it says in 2 Kings chapter 21, starting at verse 16. It says this, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin, in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, Manasseh not only sinned himself in a great way, but what he did was even worse. 
he led the people of Judah into great sin. And it was so great that God said judgment is irreversible. Now, can I play with your mind just for a moment here? Can I tell you something about Manasseh that it tells us in Chronicles? Second Chronicles tells us that at the end of his life, Manasseh repented. You may, I'm not going to make any promises, you may very well see Manasseh in heaven. He'll be the guy with a very embarrassed look upon his face. But this is what I want you to understand. Even though he repented at the end, and I'm not going to say for certain, but you may see Manasseh in heaven, even though he repented in in the end, his damage done by his sinful influence over other people was so bad that it set Judah on an irreversible course of judgment. Friends, every time I think of it, it kind of sobers me up, and it makes me think about my life and your life and the influence we have on other people. I have known people who have turned away from God at some period in their life. They, they, to, to use sort of a religious phrase, can I use a church term? They backslid. They turned their backs on Jesus. They went off and did their own thing. They, they immersed themselves in the, in the corruptions of this world, and they just said, yeah, I'm going to do that. And you know what? They come back to the Lord eventually. Or oh, maybe it's after years or months of a lot of pain, of a lot of difficulty, but eventually they come back to the Lord. But you know what? Other people who followed them away from Jesus never come back. And the influence they had on other people remains even though they themselves... And friends, that is a terrible burden to live with. That was the burden of Manasseh. Continuing on, verse 5. For who shall have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will bemoan you? Or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You've gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. And I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young man, a plunderer at noonday. I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them suddenly. She languishes, who was born seven. She has breathed her last. Her son has gone down. While it was yet day, she has been ashamed and confounded, and the remnant of them I will deliver to the sword before their enemies, says the Lord. Oh, what a distressing portion speaking prophetically of the judgment to come upon Judah. Did you see that phrase in verse 5? Who, who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? The Babylonians are going to come and crush you, and nobody's going to care. The nations of the world will not do anything to intervene or to care for you. Why, verse 6? Because you have forsaken me. Instead of going forward, you've, to use that phrase in verse 6, you've gone backward, even to the point Look at it in verse 6. God says, I am weary of relenting. Now, friends, Judah was blind to it. But God had held back his judgment against Judah for a long, long time until finally God says, I am tired of holding back my judgment. I'm going to let it go. 
I think that in modern society, there is no area of blindness greater than the blindness we have that God may very well be weary of relenting. I can never forget a quote I heard from Billy Graham. Actually, I read it. I didn't hear him say it. From Billy Graham many years ago. He said this. If God doesn't judge the United States of America, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Now, you know, you, you think about that and you think, oh, no, look, we must be cool because we haven't had some amazing judgment like it talks about here in Jeremiah. Oh, listen, we've definitely had our issues, haven't we? We've had financial collapses. We've had terrorist attacks. We've had this. We've had that. Oh, yeah, we've had our things. But you know what? All in all, you can't say it's the same thing as Jeremiah faced. We must be okay. We must be all right with God. And we have no conception of how much God has held back, how much God has relented and kept us from having what we might actually deserve from him. But friends, I'm just going to tell you, there has to be a day where somewhere along the line, God God says to us, as he said to ancient Judah, I'm weary of relenting. How long do you expect me to hold back judgment? Eventually it comes unless his people and the nation in some way repents. If they don't, look at what it says in verse 7. I will winnow them with a winnowing fan. Do you know what the picture is there? It's of what God or what a farmer does with wheat. How he separates the wheat from the chaff and then he blows a fan and the light chaff blows away. And he says, that's what's going to happen to you, Judah. You're going to be scattered by my winnowing fan and you're going to go away to exile. And it'll be so terrible that verse 8 says, their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the sea. You want to know how many widows there's going to be out there? More than the sands of the sea. That's the destruction that's going to come to Judah. So much so that look at what it says in verse 9. It says, she languishes who has borne seven sons. You know, again, we're going back to the ancient Hebrew way of thinking. In the ancient Hebrew way of thinking, seven sons, that's a perfect family. You can't do better than that. Look at this family. Seven sons, you know, and it, oh, isn't it just perfect? This is what it's saying is, even your perfect family is going to be destroyed in the judgment that is to come. Man, this is shaking stuff that God's trying to get across. And and, and no wonder that Jeremiah responds in a very personal way. Look at Jeremiah's personal woe in verse 10. He says, woe is me, my mother, that you've borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I've neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. Notice this. He says, you know, I have such a burden and having to bear this message before other people that I wish I'd never been born. Friends, how would you like to have Jeremiah's job? That heavy message that I just said to you, the, the, the message of the winnowing fan, the message of the judgment to come, the message of the perfect family being destroyed, how would you like to bear that message? No wonder Jeremiah, in a very personal way, says to God, God, Can I take a rain check on this? If this is my calling, I wish I'd never been born. Look at what he says in verse 10. I'm a man of strife and a man of contention of the whole earth. Everybody hates me. Nobody likes me anymore. Because I have to bear such a heavy message. Friends, I am so grateful that I myself, as a teacher of God's word and a minister of the gospel, 
that I have a much better message to deliver. Isn't it wonderful? Now, I I can't ignore the message of judgment, especially when it's right here in the scriptures. That's why we're teaching through the book of Jeremiah. I can't ignore the message of judgment, but I love being the bearer of the message of good news in Jesus Christ. I love being the bearer of the message of, here's how you can find forgiveness. The bearer of the message, here's how you can be born again. Here's how Jesus can turn around your life. Here's how Jesus can do everything that you need him to be for you in your life. And now he can be the Lord, the master, the savior, the redeemer, the deliverer of your life. But let me tell you something. Whether the message that God gives the messenger is good or bad, they're duty bound to deliver it even if it results in a great personal cost. He goes on, verse 11. The Lord said, Surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you. In the time of adversity, in the time of affliction, can anyone break iron? The northern iron and the bronze? Your wealth and your treasures I will give as plunder without price because of all your sins throughout your territories. And I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. For a fire is kindled in my anger which shall burn upon you. Oh, oh listen, verse 11. Surely it will be well with your remnant. Jeremiah, both you and as a representative, I'm not going to completely destroy the people. There will be a remnant, but they're going to lose everything. They're going to go through it in a terrible, terrible way. Verse 14, I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land which you do not know. You're going to be cast out of the land of Judah and go off into exile. And now in verse 15, he begins to pray. Jeremiah prays and he says, Oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake I have suffered rebuke. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because of your hand, for you have filled me with indignation. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream, as waters that fail? (laughs) Friends, we right here in these verses have been given a great privilege. Jeremiah has opened his very personal prayer closet And he said, why don't you listen to me battle with God just a little bit? Friends, do you ever battle with God in prayer? Now, I don't mean actually fight him, although it might feel like that sometimes. Do you ever reverently raise your voice to God? Lord, are you listening? Lord, can you hear me up there? Lord, I'm your servant. Will you do something on my behalf, please? Listen. There is a reverent way to do that. I will also say there's an irreverent way. But there is a reverent way to contend with God in prayer. And I think that that's exactly what Jeremiah is doing. Look at what he says in verse 15. He says, remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. By the way, that's a very good prayer to pray. Jeremiah was not saying, I'm going to get him. He says, you get him, God. You got some enemies right now in your life? Come on, let's just be honest. I'm not asking you to shout out their names or anything like that. 
You got enemies in your life? Listen, why didn't you just say in a prayer, Lord, you get them. You take care of them. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to let them go. I'm going to stop trying to exact revenge from them. But Lord, you take care of them. That's exactly what Jeremiah was doing. And then he says this in verse 16. so powerful. I know you caught this verse. He says, your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. As Jeremiah continued to plead his case before God, he declared to God the great love he had for his word and the great value that he placed upon it. Look at what it says there in that verse. First of all, Jeremiah found God's word. You know what? Generally, you find things when you're seeking for them. Isn't that how it is? Jeremiah sought after God and his word, and he found God's word. That's where it begins. You've got to find God's word. You've got to make an effort to go out after it. But then secondly, he ate God's word. He took it in as food for the soul and receiving refreshment and nourishment from it. Friends, you could have a beautiful piece of bread that's there for your nourishment. It's never going to benefit you until you take it in. Chew it up. Put it into where your body can do something with it. In the same way, God's word isn't going to do you much good until you take it into your being. You read it. You think about it. You meditate upon it. You listen to it. You you would think somebody a fool for taking a piece of bread and rubbing it upon their head for nutrition. That's not how you do it at all. You take it in. You eat it. It's the same way with God's word. You may have the most lovely Bible possible. I have a very nice Bible right here. It's done by a very um, well-known Bible manufacturer named the Allen Bible. It was given to me as a gift. And man, it's just a nice Bible. You understand, it doesn't do me any good unless I take it in. I can hold it. I can pose with it. I can give, you know, nice, you know, good preaching pose like this. What good does it do unless I take it in? That's what he says, I found your word, I ate it. But then notice the third step there. He says, I regard your, God, your word, O Lord, as the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I delight in it. It's not a burdensome do it. Oh, I got to read my chapter today. Oh, I got to read my verse today. And look, it's better to read your chapter. Oh, I got to read my chapter than to not read it at all. But can I tell you something? Why don't you just ask God and say, God, would you give me a joy over this thing that I regard as a drudgery? I want this thing that Jeremiah spoke of. I want it to be the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. Why? Verse 16, for I'm called by your name. And verse 17, I did not sit in the assembly of the mockers. Instead, verse 17, I sat alone because of your hand. God, choosing you meant I had to turn my back on other things, but that's okay. I choose you, and I will sit alone if that means I sit with you. But nevertheless, even all of that, poured out all of that. Look at verse 18. This is where it gets real. Why is my pain perpetual? And then later, Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Lord, I did all the right things. I read my Bible. I found it. I ate it. I delighted in it. I separated myself from those other people. I sat alone with you. And I feel like you are to me like a dried up river, like a dried up stream. What's wrong with you, God? You know the kind of thing he's referring to? We know it very well here in California. 
In California, uh, when people visit our state, or I should say Southern California, places where they have real rivers, you, you come with them, and let's say you're going to drive south from here on the 101, and you drive across, oh yeah, this is the Ventura River. Oh, where's the river? I just see sand. Oh no, this is Ventura. Oh, here's the Santa Clara River. We're going to drive over this. Where's the river? There's no river there. It's just a dry riverbed. What? Because it's sort of a seasonal river. And there might be a tiny trickle that flows all the time, but it's when the rains come. And friends, that's what Jeremiah is saying. God, you're not a reliable river to me. He's being very honest with God. Where are you, God? I've been faithful to you. Have you been faithful to me? I want you to see how God responded to Jeremiah in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will bring you back, and you shall stand before me. If you take out the precious from the vial, you shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall, and they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Jeremiah had his crying session before God. God, I did everything right, and where are you? You're like a dry river to me. And God says, "Um, Jeremiah, nothing personal, but When you repent, it'll be good between us again. Did you see what he said there? I'm not making this up. Verse 19, if you return, then I will bring you back. Jeremiah, I'm waiting for you. You need to let it out. That's fine. Let it out. And when you're willing to change your attitude and come to me humbly, we'll get going again. Friends, if you've been angry with God, If you're disappointed or bitter towards him, I I would need to tell you two things. Number one, God's big enough to take it. He really is. He's big enough to take it. It's not like God's having a fainting fit in heaven. Oh my, look what they're saying about me. No, God's big enough to take it. But then number two, when you get over it and repent, he's there waiting for you in open arms. Because I'll tell you, and I don't know how to to make it as, as tender as I can. I just need to deliver it straight to you. If there's a problem in your relationship with God, it's not his problem. It's mine. I'm the one who's moved somehow. I'm the one who needs to get it right. And so God is very kind, very patient to his father. Jeremiah, okay, get it out of your system. That's good, that's good. But if you return, I will bring you back. If you take out the precious from the vial, if you just understand that some of the stuff you've been saying is vile, take the precious stuff out, and then don't go associate with those you shouldn't associate with. Verse 19, let them return to you, but you must not return to them. And then he says, the job isn't going to get easier, Jeremiah. They're still going to reject you, but verse 20, I will make, to you, make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. Jeremiah, I got news for you. I'm not going to take you out of the battle. It's still going to be tough. They're still going to not listen to you. You're still going to be discouraged. But here's the good news. I'm going to strengthen you in the midst of it. And you're going to be like a fortified bronze wall. So get out there. Get out there again. 
me strengthening you, you can do this. Now, we're just kind of leaving this chapter going, whoa, man, Jeremiah is so honest with God, pouring out his heart. Listen, this doesn't end the challenge for Jeremiah. It almost gets worse. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 16. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bore them, and their fathers who begot them in this land... They shall die gruesome deaths, and they shall not be lamented, nor shall they be buried. And they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. Did you see that in verse 2? Jeremiah, cry it out. That's okay. When you return to me, we'll get a good. I'll strengthen you. Now, let me tell you this, Jeremiah. I'm telling you, I don't want you to get married. I don't want you to have kids. Can I tell you, in the ancient Jewish culture and in religious observant Jewish cultures today, this was a radical command. In ancient Jewish culture and in religious Jewish cultures today, observant cultures, it's a sin not to get married. Christianity has a different perspective on this based on the fact, number one, Jesus was single. Number two, Paul was single and specifically said that there is a calling, there is a giftedness associated with singleness and faithfulness to God in a person's singleness and celibacy. We understand that in the Christian perspective, but we're not talking about a Christian perspective with Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, it was a shame and a sin not to be married. He goes, whoa, you don't want me to get married? You don't want me to have kids? What is everybody going to say about me? God says, I don't care what they say. And let me tell you why I don't want you to get married. Verse 4, because they shall die gruesome deaths. There is judgment and distress coming upon this land. And a family will be an impediment to my prophet. Don't take a family and don't have children. And Jeremiah says, okay, Lord, this is a good thing. It's a legitimate thing. It's a thing that many other people have, and you bless them with it, but you don't want me to have. Now look at verse 5. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, nor go to lament or bemoan them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, says the Lord, loving kindness and mercies. Both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. Neither shall men lament for them, nor cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. Nor shall men break bread and mourning for them to comfort them for the dead. Nor shall men give them the cup of consolation to drink for their father or for their mother. Okay, Jer- Jeremiah, you're not going to get married and you're not going to have kids. You're my prophet. Secondly, you're going to stop going to funerals. Now listen, again, it was a big deal to go to the funeral. And friends, I need you to understand, this was before the judgment came. Because God says, Jeremiah, I don't want you to go to the funeral now. I don't want you to participate in the mourning now. Because there's going to come very shortly a time when there's so much death, where there's so much destruction, that people aren't going to have funerals. And I want you to be an illustration of that right now. And everyone says, well, why isn't Jeremiah at the funeral? Why didn't Jeremiah come to the mourning? Why didn't he do that? And Jeremiah would say, because God wanted me to do this as a sign. Can you imagine how much rejection he would face from his family and his friends and his neighbors because of this? And then look at verse 8. Also, 
You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them, to eat and to drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will cause to cease from this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. You can't get married. You can't go to the funerals. And you know what? I don't want you to go to the the feasts either, the parties. Don't go to those either. Why? Because very soon when judgment comes, there's going to be no more parties. And I want you as a living sign to demonstrate that right now. But, but Lord, the judgment hasn't come yet. Can I go to this party? No. Because you need to illustrate what it's going to be like when the judgment comes right now. Verse 8, you shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them. Why? Because in verse 9, I will cause to cease from this place the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. Now, friends, God told Jeremiah to not do three things that were extremely normal and expected in that day and age. Don't get married and have kids. Don't go to the funerals. Don't go to the parties. And he called him to do it, especially as a prophet. It wasn't as if God said nobody should get married. It wasn't if God should say nobody should go to the funeral. It wasn't if God should say nobody should go to the party. But Jeremiah, you're my prophet. You're my man. You don't do this. And can I tell you that there is a very important spiritual analogy for you and I. That in the race that we have to run, and let's face it, your race is not exactly, not, or not exactly like Jeremiah's, but you have your race to run, and I have mine. In the race that I have to run, God may prohibit to me certain things and say, David, that's just not for you. Don't do it. But, 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 but Lord, you say it's okay for them to do. No, David, that's not for you. But, but, but Lord, no, no buts, David. I'm your God. You're my servant. I have a claim upon your life. And if I want you to not do something because I tell you not to do it, you got to be okay with that. I used to think about this a lot when I would work with young people who had a real call and an aspiration for ministry in the Bible college work we did in Germany. Because I would meet, and I would also meet with, with you know, the student body as a whole, but I think especially of the young men who wanted to be pastors. And one of the things I would talk to them about at some point in the semester is to say, guys, I want you to know You can't have it all. If you want to pursue the call of God on your life for pastoral ministry and really be a man given over to his word and to his service, there's going to be some things that you have to deny yourself. That that may be fine for other people. It may be certain pleasures. It may be normal things of life. It may be this kind of vacation, this kind of success, this kind of material accomplishment, uh, this kind of rest might be sleep. How about that? You, you want to serve God in the way? You're going to get a lot less sleep than somebody else because you're going to be up late nights, not only working your job, caring for your family, but now you get to study for what you got to teach for. You, you got to be okay with that. It's the same principle for Jeremiah. And friends, can I just challenge you with this? If God is speaking to your heart right now, huh, this is how I'm working that in your life right now, can you just embrace it from the Lord? Instead of bucking against it. No, God, that couldn't be. That must be the devil telling him, no, you know what? Can we just trust that the Holy Spirit can speak to your heart right now? 
and that you just receive it? That's how God was working with Jeremiah. Verse 10. And it shall be when you show this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, and they've walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them, and have forsaken me and have not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart, so that no one listens to me. Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers. And there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Jeremiah is the messenger of this great big judgment. And there's no surprise. Whoa, 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 why, Jeremiah? You keep talking about this judgment. Why is God going to judge us so? And Jeremiah says, well, the Lord told me to tell you why. Number one, verse 11 Because your fathers have forsaken me. This coming conquest and exile of Judah was not due only to the sin of one generation. It was the hardened rebellion over several generations that brought Judah to their soon-to-come judgment. It was because of the sin of your fathers. But that's not all. You see, now you kind of talk like the television salesman. But, But that's not all. It's not only the sin of your fathers. Look at verse 12. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil hearts. You know what? Yeah, it's the sin of your fathers, but it's also your sin. Because you've done worse. Friends, there's some deep theology here that I just have the opportunity to mention. The Bible says that we are guilty before God on the basis of our father Adam's sin. We were all in Adam when he sinned. Our father Adam made us sinners before God. Now you may protest and say, well, well, that's not fair. But here's the point. It's not only Adam's sin. It's also my sin. Matter of fact, couldn't you say that my sin is worse than Adam's? What did Adam do? In rebellion against God, he disobeyed one command. And that was responsible for the fall of the human race. But verse 12 could be said of me, and you have done worse than your father Adam. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own heart. By the way, that phrase has been used many times in Jeremiah, that someone follows their own heart and how wicked that is. I can't get away from them. In modern day America, that's heaven on earth, isn't it thought to be? Everybody follows their own heart? God says, no, no. That's the path to judgment. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Can I just say, my mind is thoroughly blown by verses 14 and 15. It's an example of what I told you before. When it gets really dark in Jeremiah, it's as if God says, I can't stand how dark it is. Somebody shine a light for a few minutes. And verses 14 and 15 are that light. Look, verse 13 gets about as depressing as it could be. Verse 13, God says, you're going to go to exile and I will not show you favor there. Almost as if God couldn't leave it there. He goes, you know what? I'm going to bring you back 
out of exile. And that work is going to be so glorious that no longer will people say, the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt, but now they're going to say, the Lord who brought us up out of Babylon. Friends, the central act of redemption in the Old Testament was God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Over and over again, he says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. But now he says, now you're going to say, I'm the God who brought you out of Babylon. And it just goes to show you that God's work of restoration in an individual life can be even greater than the initial work of grace. Look, without giving a long explanation, let me just get to the point here. You were born again many years ago, and you were generally born again. And you glorify God for that, and you should. It's his grace. It's his wonderful work. He rescued you. He saved you. But along the way, you turned your back on him, did you not? And again, if you want to use that churchy word, backslid, if you want to talk about you just rejected him, but you went your own way. You were genuinely saved, but then you went your own way. Let me tell you something. Let me give you good news. The, the work of God's restoration of you, his wayward child, can be even greater than his initial work of rescuing you. He'll bring you back from exile. Would you turn to him again? Isn't that a beautiful light that he shines? All right, now, now that was a beautiful light. But let's get back. The light's going to go dark again here in verse 16. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways, and they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. At first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they defiled my land, and they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. A dark judgment, glimmer of hope. Dark judgment again. I'm going to get you. You want to know how dark it is in those verses? God says, I'm going to bring you in like a fisherman brings in the fish. And if that's not enough, then I'm going to hunt you like the hunter hunts the prey. There's going to be no hiding from my judgment. But then, verse 19, and I'm so happy the chapter ends here. We end with light again. Are you ready for some light again? Verse 19. Oh, Lord, my strength and my fortress... My refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Friends, God at the end of Jeremiah chapter 16 promises a work of redemption that is so wonderful that not only does it bring exiled Israel back, but it also reaches out and is a light to the Gentiles. Did you see that phrase in verse 19? The Gentiles shall come to you. Not not only is God going to fulfill his promise to his own people, But he will also do a greater work than that. God promises to draw the Gentiles unto himself. Drawing them, verse 19, from the ends of the earth. And they're going to say, look at verse 19. Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. What fools we've been to worship our pagan gods. 
What fools we've been to reject the God who actually is there. What fools we've been to go after our atheism and our secularism and our materialism and all our weird religions. It's in the Lord God. We recognize that. What fools we have been. And then it closes on that beautiful thought, verse 21. I will cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. Here's something for you to think about in 2015. Lord, I want to know your hand and your might. There are Bible scholars who debate. In verse 21, is he speaking to the Jews he brings back from exile? Or is he speaking to the Gentiles? And my answer from my research is yes. So it really doesn't matter which background you come from. God wants you to know his hand and his might, his skillful hand to shape and mold your life, his might to transform your life and to strengthen you and to bless you. Can you receive that from him tonight? And so that you will know him in all his character, so that you will know him as the Lord. Father, that's our trust. That's our praise of you tonight. We do not want to be in the same trap as ancient Judah and reject you and turn to things that are just imaginations of our own heart. But instead, Jesus, we look to you all over again. And we say, Jesus, be our redeemer, be our deliverer, be our savior in a greater way than we've ever known. Lord, I pray right now, for people who in a very special way tonight, they need to know your hand and your might. Maybe they feel that you've been distant from them or detached from them. Lord, I pray that right now, just by an outpouring of your Holy Spirit, you would help them to know your closeness and your grace. We want this year, 2015, to be a year of the strong hand of the Almighty in our midst. Do it, Lord so that we can run the race that you've given each one of us to run faithfully until the end. You blessing us, Lord, we know we can. We give you our lives. We give you this year. We give you everything we are, everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.